0: All right, we are um, going through the the evidences for the scriptures. We talked about prophecy last week, and we're going to talk about one, and we're, at least right now, we're going to go to one that's maybe not quite as uh, convincing. Um, It's not as, uh, it doesn't carry the same weight to me as predicting the future with great detail. This really has to do with, I guess, our present, if you want to think about it that way, um, as, we, uh, as we advance as, humani- as a you know, humankind and learning about the stuff that is in our present, um, what we find is that the Bible charts this, or many of these things. The Bible's not a science book, but we will find that there is science in it. I want to start, however, and I don't know if we're going to get through all the material I have today, but I want to start with a false choice. Uh, You will hear people say things like, well, I leave the science to scientists and I leave the religion to God. I heard a uh, a, a professor who's a Christian of some sort, professor from Rutgers, uh, a speech in Berlin while I was there. That was kind of cool. And that was a statement he made. And he had an otherwise great lecture. Um, But on that topic, um, well, that is a false choice. It's a false choice because uh, Romans 1 um, says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal powers, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So, uh, God declares that the spiritual world and the natural world are connected. Uh, you should see spiritual truths in the natural world around you. God says no. No we should expect that the God who made and designed Christianity is the same God who designed the world. Christianity works. The world works. They're not completely separate, in a separate box. And God says, one should lead you to the other. Um, So uh, I don't leave science to the scientists. I leave the science to God. Uh, if we believe that a scripture is inspired by God, then we should not be afraid of science. Uh, and so this is a false choice. What this does is it sets up this thing where you have to, you have to defend being against science. See, they, they, they move into that. It's like on a chess piece. You want to hold the middle ground, right? Uh, and make them move around the corner. That's the basic philosophy of chess. And so they try to take the middle ground. We are the default, and your religion is going to have to kind of go around us. Um, and that's not uh, that 's not accurate that is uh, uh what we call a false choice um, the, the um, there it, there has there does not have to be a choice between believing in God and science and we 're going to see that uh today. I do want to look at a couple things one or one more thing and that is that in this passage in Romans that we just read, he does say, "Listen, the truth is not objective truth will not be it, Unethical people are under no compulsion to treat it honestly. He says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because of their unrighteousness, they don't care about the truth. And so you will see that in the, in the world around us, scientists will falsify data and information in order to justify themselves. And they've, they've been caught doing it time and time and time again. Right? From piltdown man till all over things. They, they, they will falsify information... <coughs> Uh, and create stuff out of thin air uh, to justify themselves. Because why? Why would they feel the the freedom to do that? They want to be right. Okay, they want to be right. But to make themselves important. Make themselves important. No moral standard. They don't believe in God, so they have no basis to act right. They've already rejected God, so why not just do this? I don't believe in God. So we're kind of under the, the constraint of having an ethical background and a conscience. So we need to be objective. Yeah. Can we be very careful to not stereotype scientists? One of the most religious people I've ever known was also one of my best college professors mm-hmm. ever. He was very good at separating yeah. his chemistry mm-hmm. and his religion. Yeah. We, knew, we knew it all. We yeah. Said that he was very religious.: yeah, but great guy.: Yes, that is true. that's a good point. Um, there are thousands and thousands of people you will never hear from. Uh, they will never be put in front of a microphone or a camera because they disagree with some of the the more popular ideas at the same time, we would need to um, accept the fact that the the, the body majority of, of science. Has a view of something, and that's what your your uh, what our kids will face in colleges. What they'll face everywhere. There will be exceptions. Yes. I was going to say that actually just further uh, uh, further emphasizes your first point that there doesn't have to be a choice between. Right. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So I want to talk about a couple of topics, and we won't get through these. I don't know if we'll pick it up next year or next week, if or if we'll just continue on on a different topic, but. Uh, I thought of just uh, going through uh, a couple of topics. I want to talk about cosmology, our universe. God shows um, his hand in our universe, and he shows in the scriptures things about the universe. Now we do have to be careful that we don 't make too much about things. There are claims that are made on, the, on in the name of the Bible that are not good claims, so we do want to make sure that we 're not claiming too much. Uh, We've heard of the laws of thermodynamics. We're going to talk about one of the laws of thermodynamics. Who knows what um, the second law of thermodynamics who could explain entropy in a real quick? Chaos. Okay, All things will go to a lower state of energy. Okay. All right. So, uh, in any system, a closed system, energy wants to go from organized up here to disorganized. That, uh, if you put a, if you put hot water in a cup and you put an ice cube in it. The energy wants to go from the hot water to the ice cube until they meet at a point in the middle, right? Um, you drop a plate and it shatters. Yeah, okay. So what happens when you, when you, if you drop a plate and it shatters? How do you know it shattered if you didn't see it? You heard it. Okay, that's energy. Now, energy has gone out of that, uh, out of this total. You can never recapture that sound energy and use it again, right? It's, it's gone, uh, it's somewhere out there, but it, it's, it's gone into this state where, where we, can't, we can't use it. And so as time goes on, these, these forms of energy are happening. Our universe says we're going, if we were given an infinity amount of time, all stars, there, there would be no way to replenish this energy. It would, it would seek its own level throughout our universe, and there would be nothing to do at that point. That was denied for a long time. Ooh, we didn't even know about the law of entropy. However, uh, Hebrews, 2,000 years ago, writes, uh, I believe it's Paul that writes this. He says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands, and they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. And like a robe, you will roll them up, and like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. Your years have no end. Not a very scientific-sounding statement, except for the fact that he perfectly describes the law of entropy. It will wear out. Our, the scientific models that we deal with today are still based on the idea that things are getting more complex and more ordered as we go along. Now what would be a good justification for the, for the idea that things seem to be getting better? Is there any justification for that? I mean, things seem to be getting better, don't they? What's that? We don't live in caves anymore. Right? Don't we live longer? Don't we seem to be... It's like, wow, we're getting healthier. Right? Remember I said in a closed system, and that's kind of a, a point here. You can add energy into the system and kind of reset it. So if I have that, that, that coffee I, I, I made and uh, I wanted an iced coffee, now it's room temperature, right? So I, I can now introduce uh, well, it would be kind of reversed because coal doesn't actually have energy. But, but the point being, I, I could add something. If I wanted it hot again, I could add more hot water and, and, and bring the energy up, and, and then we'd start that process again. Right? So, so I can add energy in. We've, in, a, in a sense, in the medical field, we've added energy. We've, we've put in organization from the outside. That is, we've, we've added great medicine and technological advances and, and pacemakers and heart transplants and all these things we've put into the equation that weren't there. But yet, if we look at humanity, we have so many more diseases to deal with than we ever had before. It's going down. We're just pretending it's not. Right? It's like saying, well, humans can fly because we can get in an airplane. Okay, okay. You just keep flying that plane around the Earth until it runs out of gas, and you see how well the plane is flying at that point. No. You are resisting gravity. Gravity still exists, right? So, so that's the idea. Everything is going down. It is not getting better. We are not getting more complex. We're not getting better on our own. Uh, so, so the law of thermodynamics is, really stands against All of these models that we have today. And I don't want this to be an evolution class. Um, I want this to be a Bible class. I want to illustrate that the Bible stands true when it looks at these laws of science. Let's look at the earth's position. Uh, These are the, the science of the day thousands of years ago. Atlas, right? we still have the phrase boy he's carrying the, world, the weight of the world on his shoulders right? we still say that that's a reference to Atlas who carried the world on his shoulders that's what the Greeks believed um, in India they believed that the world was carried on four elephants who were standing on a large sea turtle don't know what the sea turtle was on but you know that was the science of the day and yet God says, "That's, by the way, that's the first ever picture of the earth. By the time that was taken in the 60s, uh, I think 1967, we knew that those other theories were a little bit off. Um, but it's just kind of interesting. People, people had a dramatic reaction to that, that first photo, even before we had been into outer space uh, or stood on the moon or whatever. Uh, so, so he says um, he stretches out the north, over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. So uh, the Bible declares, and that's Job that writes that. He's either contemporary with or just before Moses. So, so think about the time back. And, and, and in fact, just to underscore this, This story is not revealed as Job being so smart that he knew this. Whoever wrote this story, whether Job or someone who knew Job, maybe Moses wrote this story and had met Job while he was in Midian or whatever, uh, it's it's relayed to whoever wrote this as Job not knowing. and, And God is confronting Job at the end of this book and he's saying, listen, you don't know squat about anything. You think you're so smart, and if this is all in this this whole section where God is. God might have told us the answer before anyone was asking the question. In other words, what does the earth hang on? They might not have been to the point where they were even considering this concept yet, because this statement predates both of those two theories. Those are a Greek and an Indian theory. Those are later in time than Job lived. And the answer is already there before they had developed their theories. It's already there. Let's talk about earth's shape. The Bible says, just a couple of verses later. This is really a powerful section. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters and at the boundary between light and darkness. How do you get a curved shadow? There's only one way to get a curved shadow. That's to have a sphere. You can do this. Have a flat disk, a round disk, whatever, and bring a flashlight. Go at night, bring a flashlight up over it like a sunrise. You will not get a curved shadow. No matter how many times you do that, the flat earthers have a kind of a problem with this. Um, They have some interesting explanations for how that occurs. You cannot get a circle or a curved shadow horizon unless you have a sphere. That is impossible. Job could not have written this of his own volition because you cannot see it until you are about 35,000 feet Above ground. That's where you start to see a curved earth. According to the internet. But I know you can't see it from here. That looks flat to me. I mean bumpy but certainly no curve. You get up in an airplane you can see it. So Job could not have attested to that on his own. It was Pythagoras who first theorized it based on a different concept, and that was the ships in the ocean, watching them go over. About a thousand years later, the first person in the world theorized, dared to theorize that the earth might not be flat. So. And again, these are not Job's theories. He doesn't state these as knowing them, but as having them revealed to him. Let's change up topics a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about life. There's amazing evidences of life uh, and uh, things about life that we know now. And a lot of these things seem simple. It's like, well, obviously they could have made that observation. I know about the curvature of the earth and I've been to the ocean and I've never looked at the ships and pondered at how they disappear when they go over the, about seven miles off or whatever. I've never thought about that and I know it to be true. How many people not knowing that to be true, not having any idea, would have never thought to look at the ships disappearing in the ocean? That's just not a thing. We assume so many things because we have these advances, and, and but to a people... To a people who don't know these these things take years, centuries of building on other advancements and building on other discoveries. And we're seeing that at the very earliest point people are writing these things as fact. That's, that's not, that's just that's not normal. Uh, so let's talk about life. That is a strand of genetics. Uh, what it would actually look like. Most of the models that you see, even ones that look like a photograph, are computer generated because it's so small. If you look at that, you can kind of see that curvy shape, but that's blown up with like the best microscopes that we have available. That's how small this stuff is. And it is to think of the amount of information that's packed into DNA. Uh, This is a guy by the name of Gregor Mendel. He was a monk, but he was also a physicist. Uh, He worked in a monastery. Gregor Mendel um, was assigned, uh, while he was there, the garden. An older guy was kind of retiring or whatever and couldn't take care of the garden. So he said, Gregor Mendel, uh, physicist, take care of the garden for for the, the monks. Well, so he took care of it as a physicist would, and he started analyzing peas, and peas largely because they germinate and go, do quicker. And so he started looking at these peas. Now, we knew that you could crossbreed animals and things like that and come up with a better animal. We knew that. But he's the first one that really started charting it. He's called the father of modern genetics uh, because he's the one that really analyzes and says, well, if you do this so many times out of this many, this will happen. And he starts getting this theory of recessive traits and dominant traits and if you do this this will happen 25% of the time that means well this must be a recessive trait this recessive trait and he starts coming up with this idea there must be two pieces of information that are, they're getting from male and female this was not known well 99 years later these two guys discovered um, DNA the 1800s and the 1900s and one of the first the first statement of life on our earth is about plant life in Genesis and he says God said let the earth bring forth grass herb yielding seed and the fruit yielding uh, fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind whose seed is in itself but upon the earth and it was so and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after its kind and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And you might say, well, this is just a simple observation that you plant a cherry tree, you get a cherry. Okay, maybe. And yet there are two statements that, if again, if we look at it as a a, a person writing it then, are statements that really underscore the concept of genetics here. And one is information. The concept of information being in the tree after its kind. That, that is a statement of information. And the second is a limit. Um, when we moved over to Ukraine, we found out that they don't really have good corn on the cob over there. So I was, well, I came back one of our first years. I went to a guy I said, I want to buy some corn. I'm going to get a, a little plot of land and get a little garden and I'm going to plant corn. So I got like the, the, the butter and sugar corn. I love that stuff, right? Because uh, they have corn over there, but it's like cow corn. It's just awful. So, so we got the corn. I said, well, now, if I, I only want this like a day or two of the year just because, you know, just for a treat. I said, can I take some of the ears of corn and harvest to see will it be fertile afterwards? He said, well, he said, it might be. There's a chance that it will be. This is all hybrid. He said, but the the, the problem is is, um, within one or two generations it will be whatever the kind of seed it started out as, whatever the dominant corn it was, if it is fertile, you'll get that original corn. You won't have this. The concept of limit. This seed does not want to be what it is. If you eat... Corn on the cob—it's been genetically produced that year. That's from that generation. It's it's not second-generation hybrid. (laughs) There's no such thing. Uh, So, so corn wants to be corn, and whatever that kind of corn is, it, it wants to be that. There's a limit. And this idea that, that, that things want to change, be all these other things, it just doesn't work. It doesn't even work when we try to add energy into the system and force it to be something different. and, no, I'm going to be corn this year or next year, the year after, I'll be what I want to be and what I was made to be. There is this information it produces after its own kind. Uh, I think that's interesting. Talk about blood. Hmm blood Um, he says you shall not eat the blood or the flesh with its blood because that's the life that's the life that seems like an obvious statement to you and me that's the life how many of you know what a good sense of humor is right do you know where that comes from the word humor is actually I think a French word that means fluid. You have uh, four humors. You are one of these four humors, right? Uh, you are phlegmatic, choleric, sanguine, or... I copied that and didn't change it. Or what's the other one? Choleric, sanguine, melancholy. Melancholy. That's why I forgot to do that. Uh, so uh, you have... You probably didn't know this. All the fluids in your body are composed of four things. You either have phlegm, blood, yellow bile, which is cholera, or its I uh, forget which one that is, is—but uh, or black bile, which no one has any idea what in the world that is. No science can reproduce this theory. This is an old theory. And so all of your problems are because of the fluids in your body. Are There's something wrong. Every one of these is seen as a problem. Even the sanguine, which means blood, is a bad problem. You are sanguine, you're too bubbly, you've got too much blood. That's why you're the way you are. You've just, whew, you got too much blood. Uh, or, and, or you have bad blood, you've got this bile in your blood. And so guess what we have to do when you have problems? We have to bleed you. This is how George Washington died. George Washington died because he had probably either an upper respiratory infection or strep throat. And they bled 40% of his blood. Because they did not see it as important. They saw it as the enemy. So this picture did not look very nice. That's not what the picture in the room where George Washington died looked like. It would have been a rather bloody mess. And yet, if they would have listened, embedded in the code, the religious code of the Jews thousands of years ago is this idea, listen, life is in the blood. So this is such a statement of fact that they based their laws upon this concept. That's... 4,000 years of errors because people didn't recognize something in the scriptures. Let's talk about microbiology. Again, in a civil code, he says, Whoever touches the dead body of a person shall be unclean for seven days. He will cleanse himself with water on the third day and on the seventh, so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh, he will not be clean. Well, isn't it interesting that for years and years, mankind has suffered epidemics here and there, the bubonic plague and all sorts of things, because we don't understand where infection comes from and where all these things come from. In fact, even if we expand this topic out, he even gets into the concept of quarantining people. Which even in Europe wasn't done. They didn't think they needed to do it. They didn't it's beyond their science. Remember that this is more than a moral code. But God is taking a people who are not genetically advanced or whatever, not medically advanced. And He's providing here you've got thousands, millions of people in a desert congregated close together. That is not a highly sanitary situation. And he's got to protect these people. And so, again, embedded in this moral code and civil code are some ideas that illustrate that whoever created this whole thing and whoever wrote this thing understood some principles that were not accepted until... Very recently, yes. If you look at all some of the other stuff regarding mold and mold and things like that, they were just to just burn it and get rid of it. Don't even touch it, don't even try to clean it, don't even. Because you're not going to be able to handle this, just get rid of it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, break the pots, bury them. Yep. There's all sorts of stuff like that, that that they didn't understand. They didn't know why they were doing this. God's not explaining to them microbiology. He's not going to do that. Okay, there's these things called bacteria, and you just like like with kids, you don't explain why you don't. Yeah, you know, just don't do it. You don't need to explain to little kids. But it's an evidence that this was a concept back then, and we don't read of major epidemics unless they were being punished for something um, back then. So. Microbiology. By the way, Aristotle popularized the idea of spontaneous generation. A little bit about that. Just a couple of people that we want to look at. This was held, actually, in a way it's still, life arises out of non-living matter. That's still a basis of things that kids are taught in school. Life arises from non-living matter because that's the only way you can get around to God. Uh, This is a guy by the name of Francisco Reddy in 1600 he decided he did not believe in spontaneous generation. So he's an Italian guy, um, and, and he did some experiments um, and proved that life does not arise on dead matter. Because the theory was, well, you, you see a piece of rotting meat, and all of a sudden there's maggots on it. Well, it must have come from the rotting meat. And he proved that it wasn't true. He was a very religious believer. He quoted... Uh, Bible scripture in his theories and in his theses. His works were not accepted in the 1600s. They went Mm -hmm. against the scientific community because they were still operating on Aristotle's idea of spontaneous generation. This is a guy, he was in Budapest, uh, Ignaz Semmelweis. Um, He decided, based on other people's works, that He would start, he was a surgeon, he would start sterilizing. Uh, He was an obstetrician. I can't say that, you know what I mean. Uh, So, uh, before procedures and and before uh, birthing and all this stuff, he he was going to sanitize, wash his, his hands. Everyone else thought because there was no need to do that, there was no need to. Because they didn't understand microbiology. That was not a big thing at the point in time. Remember, we just take that for granted bacteria. <laughs> he didn't believe in spontaneous generation. He thought there was something happening that they couldn't see that was causing death. The, the, the average mortality rate in hospitals was 18%. In his hospitals, they were less than 2%. You would think that would be fairly convincing. But the scientific community rejected him and hounded him out of business to the point where he was eventually put in an insane asylum where he was beaten to death. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't care about the facts. That's the fact. It went against their theories. because Darwinianism grabbed hold of Aristotle's spontaneous generation and it was becoming popular in Europe. So about the same time as he was, was, a few years before he was actually killed in a different part of the world in France, Louis Pasteur reproduced a superior version of Francisco Reddy's, or Francisco Redi's experiments, and finally the world accepted it. And spontaneous generation was dead, except we still have holdovers taught today. Vitamins? Does the Bible talk about vitamins? No, it doesn't. But it does give us an interesting statement. He who is eight days old Among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or brought with your money or any foreigner who's not your offspring. So the question is, why eight days? Anybody know? Magical number? No. Close. Vitamin K is not produced until the fifth day in a born child. We'll get to why males are circumcised right there on the spot. In the hospital, they are given injections of vitamin K. Vitamin K is not what clots your blood, uh, contrary to popular opinion. Um, Some people simplify this. Your liver produces a thing called prothrombin. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. What is right? Sweet. I get one right. That production is spurred by vitamin K. So vitamin K starts being produced in your body about the fifth day. The liver takes a few days to catch up. Uh, So much so, the eighth day is the only day in a human's life in which prothrombin will be above the average level. It will be more than 100% of the normal level. It's the only day in your life unless you've got an abnormality in your liver. Now, why didn't they just do trial and error? Could they have just figured this out from trial and error? oh, the baby died. He's hemorrhaging. We did this at 2 days. Oh, that was maybe we should wait till 3 days. 5 days? 7, 8 days. Hey, 8, eight works. Okay. What's the problem with that? <laughs> they didn't really care about that. <laughs> Abraham is the first person. Now, we, this is written with Moses, but, but it's given to Abraham almost 500 years later. So we're talking about 2,000 years before Christ. Abraham is Chaldean. He's from the Ur of Chaldees. That would be like later Babylon and stuff like that, right? And Persian, Babylon, all that, that area. They didn't do it. There's no trial and error because. It is not until him that they do this thing. Gentiles don't circumcise. It's not a thing. So there's no trial and error. There's no, let's figure out. They didn't do it. Along comes somebody and does it, and they said, do it today. First shot. That's an incredible coincidence. Unless you know something. Unless you know something about how the human body is composed. Here are a couple more minutes. Well, I will close with one. I had just enough time. Engineering. we got some engineers here. This is a fun one. This is not really dramatic. This is just kind of a fun one I threw in. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6. It says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms for the ark cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of 300 cubits. And we multiplied that by about one and a half, if you want feet. Uh, it's breadth 50 cubits, height 30. So okay. 450 by 75 by 45 feet. Make a roof for the Ark and finish that about a foot and a half above the rest of it. Uh, and set the door of the Ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Okay. There is a, a, a University of Leicester... In England, I don't know if they call it Leicester. I might be pronouncing that wrong. I know it's Leicester, Massachusetts, because that's right next to where I lived. So, uh, they have a senior project in their physics and engineering college, where you have to take something from any piece of literature. It could be Shakespeare. It could be anything, and see if it can be reproduced. And it is kind of like. uh, Mythbusters if you've ever seen that right? So they, they, they reproduce This concept in, in, in physics and use all the Principles they have to see if it could be done Or not They are not Christians trying to prove something Right I'll illustrate that as we close here Now uh, the, the Bible is not Like the pictures in your Children's Bible story that looks a lot more Like this probably It doesn't look like the one in Kentucky which also won't float, Uh, looks cool, but didn't look like that. It was a big box. Um, So four physics students got together, and they wanted to use this story as an engineering project. So they did all the physics. You know what kind of beams they know the beams, what kind, what's the strength, the tensile, and all this stuff. They used concepts of floatability. So there's you know uh, you know water displacement and all these things that I'm not an engineer and I'm just listening to them talk and my head's going. <laughs> I don't know all this. The upshot is is that they said this shape, this size, this kind of wood would be floatable. Without breaking, uh, as this place is so much water, if you filled it with 2.1 million sheep, which there's room with three floors this size to do, more than enough actually. A sheep, they say, why a sheep? a sheep? A sheep is the average size of a species on our earth. If you figure out, there's not, the, the, the larger you get, the fewer the number of species. Most of your species are smaller than a sheep, much smaller. So uh, mice and things like that. The feeder animals are typically smaller, and, and the bigger ones, as you get up, are, small, or, are, are fewer. So a sheep is about the average size. So that would, using the Bible numbers, that would produce approximately 1 million what we would call kinds. Not species, but kinds. So in other words, you don't need dachshunds and terriers and Malamutes and and, and... and You can get a smaller number of kinds and reproduce all the types of dogs or all the types of horses or all the types of cows. Now you would need more than one kind of cow. You'd need more than one kind of dog to get everything from it. Uh, but you could do it with a much smaller number. There are about six million kinds or species, individual species of land animals. We don't care about the sea animals, they can swim. You could get all of those at the most from 200,000 kinds. If you multiplied that by two, you would have 400,000 animals that's a lot less than 2 million. So you have room for food, you have room for whatever. Way enough room without even causing this thing any distress whatsoever. This is we'll close with this statement because this illustrates what they were. This is one of the guys said this. You don't think of the Bible uh, necessarily as a scientifically accurate source of information. you tell his what they went into it with. So I guess we were quite surprised when we discovered it would work. Well, you shouldn't have been. If you didn't understand that the God of science makes the God of religion, and the God of the Bible is the God of the universe, and this is not surprising at all. You don't have to be afraid of science. They're one. They are one in God. And people who would attack the Bible based on that, I'm not afraid of them. I don't care how many degrees they have behind them. Because I've got the author of the universe and the author of the Bible behind me. All right, you're dismissed